Now, this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the reader uh, for the scriptures this morning as we prepare our hearts for studying God's word. From Luke 8, verses 40 through 48. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then, a man named Jarius came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12, who was dying. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman, suffering from bleeding for 12 years, who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any of them, approached him from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, he said. I know that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you, Angela. Good morning, church family. Is everybody doing all right? Okay. We'll see if I can change that. Just kidding. Uh, If you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And one of the things that is so valuable to us as a church is we love to just go through books of the Bible We have a deep conviction that all of Scripture from the first page to the last is given to us by God and is beneficial for us. And so for the almost eight years that we have been a church, virtually every Sunday morning, we just open up the Bible and we like to just go, and particularly we like to go through books of the Bible. Sometimes we'll do some topical things for a while, but we love to just go through books of the Bible. And as a church right now, we are going through the book of the Bible known as Leviticus. And if you are new and you are unfamiliar with the book of Leviticus, Leviticus is the third book in the Bible, and I jokingly say that it's the one that Christians always give up on their read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plan in, because there are just some strange and distant and awkward-sounding things. But my goal is to convince you, A, that you can read your Bible. You don't seem convinced. A, that you can read your Bible. B, you can understand your Bible. And C, you can see Jesus in every page of the scripture. Now today, we are in Leviticus 15. And um, yeah, as Tim mentioned a moment ago, the heading is bodily discharges. So there are some admittedly strange and not common things to go through today. Uh, I'm really grateful for our children's ministry, and we can really thank all of our teachers and volunteers downstairs when you you give them, when you go to pick up your kids later, give them a huge high five and say, hey, thank you that I don't have to have a super awkward conversation with my seven-year-old later this afternoon. Give them a hug, give them $20, whatever you want to give them. Uh, And also, I've been jokingly saying for weeks, even for months, like, hey, you know, we got this really awkward sermon coming up. Invite your boss, invite your grandma. Well, the joke's on me because my parents decided to fly in on short notice this week. So they were at the 9 a.m. service, and I had to preach this sermon with my mom and dad sitting there looking at me. So... Ha, ha, ha. So, okay, for those of you, I see we have some middle schoolers here, 
And I see that we have some adults with the maturity level of middle schoolers. So just get your giggles out right now, okay? We're going to be using words like sex and menstruation and semen and all of those delightful words that you never hear people say in church. And I'm going to show you how this points to Jesus by his grace alone. Will you pray for me? Will you pray with me, I should say? Lord, we give this time to you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that all of the word of God, all the scriptures has been given to us for our benefit. And Lord, we confess, this is strange. This is an odd passage to our ears in our modern culture. But Lord, we want to trust you that you have good things for us and that we can come to understand these words and what they mean and how they point to Jesus. So I pray, Lord, for myself that you would guard and lead my words, that I would only say that which is truthful in line with your word and help all of us to walk away today with not only a better understanding of the book of Leviticus, but just hearts that are more deeply devoted to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. All right, I'm very simply today going to try to ask and answer three questions. And if I'm being honest, these three questions are the same three questions that I am trying to ask and answer every time I preach a sermon. Here are the three questions. Question number one, what did this chapter or what did these teachings mean to them? The the first original audience. We have to get in a time machine and go back and try to ask, what were they thinking? What was the world like for them? Second question, because we're followers of Jesus and Jesus said the whole Bible points to him. So every Sunday we're always asking, how does this teaching or this passage or whatever point us to Jesus? And then the third question is, how do we live these teachings out today? How do we live these teachings out today? So question number one, what did these teachings mean to them? Now, over the course of the summer, uh, a couple of my daughters have decided that it is going to be the summer of Doctor Who. And in Doctor Who, I, uh, other than Pastor Steve, has anyone here else watched or enjoy Doctor Who? Okay, I've walked through the room to know enough that you get into a phone booth, which is a very old-fashioned thing to say, but you can travel in time in this phone booth to different historical places. I want you to imagine that I have just handed you a TARDIS, and we're all going to go to the the Sinai Desert, about 3500 BC. And you're going to get out of your phone booth, you're going to look around, and you're going to say, wow, the world is very different. The world is very strange. In fact, in the world, not just in Israelite culture, but in the entire ancient Near Eastern culture, they interacted with this thing that we call ritual impurity. It's a a series of laws and codes and regulations to help distinguish between that which is clean and that which is unclean, between that which which demonstrates life and that which demonstrates death. And we can see the Israelite uh, understanding of ritual impurity most clearly in Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5, where the Lord instructs most Numbers is the very next book after Leviticus. It's related. It's a companion book. And here's just a little summary. So the Lord instructs Moses, command the Israelites to send away anyone from the camp who is afflicted with a skin disease, a discharge, or anyone who is defiled because of a corpse. Doesn't matter if they're men or women. You have to send them outside of the camp so that they will not defile their camps where I dwell among them. So we can very clearly see the three main sources of, of this uncleanness, this impurity, is corpse, touching a corpse, having a, a white, ashy skin disease that makes you look like a corpse. We talked about that last week. And these bodily discharges. And I'm going to say it now, and I'm going to say it probably 13 or 14 more times as this teaching progresses. It is not a sin to be ritually impure. We are not talking about morality. We are talking about mortality. 
We are not talking about doing something right versus doing something wrong. We are talking about certain situations that happen in life that remind us that the world is broken and we are not in Eden with access to the tree of life the way that we once were. But it is not sinful to be ritually impure. Matthew Thiessen, who's a a New Testament scholar, wrote a very helpful book on ritual impurity. He said, the majority of Israelites would have, at one time or another, experienced such ritual impurities. Priestly legislation does not prohibit Israelites from contracting such impurities, nor does it punish them for doing so. Priestly law assumes that people will endure such impurities and provides them with the ritual means to remove those impurities. It's only in the event that people do not properly deal with their impurities, then the issue becomes one of wrongdoing. So these are things that just happen in the course of life. In the course of life, a a close family member or a friend is going to die. And someone needs to pick up their dead body and bury it in the ground. I know that in our culture, we have, we have distanced ourselves from death. It's become so sanitized. I remember a, a few years ago, I was in Uganda in a very rural uh, village, a very rural part of Uganda, and we had a, a, a doctor, a medical professional. This is a, a, a you know, degreed professional doctor who was supposed to meet us to help us do some malaria treatment that we were going to be doing in the area. And he was extremely late, six, seven, eight hours late. And when he showed up, he said, I am very sorry for being late. I had to bury my mother this morning. That's, that's a much closer contact with death than what we are used to. And in the ancient world, they, they had to touch dead bodies. In the ancient world, you would get skin diseases, mysterious, white, ashy, flaky skin disease. It's commonly referred to as leprosy in the Bible, although it's not the same as modern-day leprosy. So you might be able to say, and by the way, I belabor this point just because last week somebody came up and asked me a question, a really great question, but they asked me, they said, hey, when Jesus touched the leper, did he violate the Torah? And the answer to that is, it's a great question. I'm really glad for the question. The answer is unequivocally no, because... It is not a sin or a wrongdoing to touch a dead body, to touch a a leper, or to have these various discharges. Jesus fulfilled the Torah perfectly. And part of it is understanding that in the routine, just in the the course of your life, at some point, you're going to be ritually impure. Now, maybe you're saying, okay, I get how a dead body represents death, because it's a dead body. And you could say, maybe I get how... uh, 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 you know, skin diseases that make you look like a dead body represents death. That's easy. Pastor Aaron, what is the deal with these body fluids? How does that represent death? Well, I'm glad you asked. Buckle up. Leviticus 15. I'm going to just kind of give you some overview and I'll read some verses from it if you have your Bibles open to it. But Leviticus 15, scholars have noticed that it's this really, really neat and tidy symmetry known as a chiasm in, in you know, study of text. So it starts with the introduction, it ends with a summary. Then you can see, if you're looking here on the screen, it's, you know, there's abnormal male discharges, normal female, uh, abnormal female discharges. Then as you get kind of closer to the center, there's normal male and female discharges. And right in the middle is a description of sexual intercourse between uh, a man and his wife. So let me give you this, this overview, right? The introduction, the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron, says, I need you to tell them some things. Now you get to verse 2 where it says, if any man has a discharge from his member, he is unclean. And we know that this is not just like the kind of normal 
sexual discharge of, of semen because A, it doesn't use the word seed here or semen, and it will in a minute, but also it says in verse four, all the days that this keeps going on because of this discharge, he is unclean. So there's some sort of many scholars kind of dis- debate, like, is this some sort of an STD? Is this some sort of a discharge? We don't exactly know, but just meaning this isn't the normal thing that happens in the course of human life as a male. It's some sort of an abnormal discharge. The furniture must be washed. The clothing that you wear must be washed. When it heals up, when it dries up, the man is to go present himself to the priest to be examined and to be declared clean. And there goes through a a ritual purity cleansing ceremony. And boy, I'm so grateful to be a New Testament pastor, not a Levitical priest. Then you see in verses 16 and 17, what would just be called normal male discharges. It says, if a man has an emission of semen, and the Hebrew word there is seed, it's zarah, then he is to bathe his whole body in water. You'll be unclean till evening. Next day, carry on. Good to go. And scholars discuss this because it doesn't say, it it explicitly says in verse 18 about sexual intercourse with a woman. Here, it doesn't say that. It just says a a, a discharge. And so scholars sometimes see maybe in here something related to like a nocturnal emission or what we would call a wet dream. There is a verse in Deuteronomy that explicitly says that. Some even possibly see a reference to something like masturbation. Either way, I read some really interesting commentaries this week. Uh... And I just leave it at that. Uh, but it's, it's not about disease. It's about just a normal bodily function. Then in verse 18, it says, if a man lies with a woman, or the implied word there would be wife, because the word woman or wife in Hebrew, it's the same Hebrew word, and has an emission of seed, both of them shall bathe, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. And I just want to pause for a brief moment here and just say that there's a really sad and tragic and unfortunate history of biblical interpretation, where particularly after, let's say, the the third century or so, some followers of Jesus looked at a passage like this and therefore concluded that God was against sex because they mistakenly thought that unclean meant sinful. I've said it once. I've said it a thousand times throughout this series. I'm going to continue to say it. To be unclean is not sinful. And we're going to deal with this some more in just a few weeks on the uh, 11th of September. So if if this isn't enough for you, make sure you plan ahead for that weekend. We're going to discuss how the Bible is, in fact, very pro-sex. That sex is God's idea. He designed it not only for uh, the, the production and the generation of new life, but to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. And even though there are safeguards and there are uh, parameters placed around this good gift of sex from God, it does not mean that God is anti-sex. It means that he wants us to be able to enjoy this good gift without the, the, the proverbial fire getting out of the fireplace and lighting everything on fire and destroying everything. So we're going to deal with that more in a few weeks, but I just want to stay right here. Unclean until evening does not mean sinful. It just means there's some reminder here of death. And we're going to explain that more in a minute here, okay? The passage goes on. Now it switches to women. When a woman has a discharge, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. Whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. Everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean, and everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. 
And just in case you're wondering, no, we did not conduct a survey at the 9 a.m. service and figure out which chairs we needed to swap out. It's just we're not in the Levitical time, right? But again, I'm just reminding you, it is not a sin. This is not a sin for a woman to have her period. Again, there's some tragic history of biblical interpretation that would look at this and say, well, because a woman is bleeding, she's somehow inferior or she's somehow impure or unclean. We must reject all of that. That is not what is being said here. And then lastly, there's an abnormal discharge where something just continues on for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity. Uh, She shall all the days of her discharge continue in her uncleanness. And then lastly, God speaks to Moses in the summary and says, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. And there's one final uh, misinterpretation of this passage, which is God is rejecting and pushing away these dirty, rotten, unclean people. And they, they view it as some sort of act of harshness from the Lord, when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. This is an act of compassion on behalf of the Lord. Because if you remember, the whole idea here in the book of Leviticus is that God, in his perfect holiness, has, has set up shop in the tabernacle And you cannot have that which is impure. You cannot have that which bears the marks of death come into the presence of a perfectly glorious, righteous, and holy God. It's like saying, that's really mean of you to make somebody, you know, put on a hazmat suit and spray down and make sure they're clean before they come into, you know, the reactor center of a nuclear power plant. How mean of you. No, it's not. It's an act of compassion. Would you let me go into a nuclear power plant? with or without a hazmat suit. I would need some training, right? And this whole book of Leviticus is training for what it means to be pure and be holy so that we can come into the presence of a perfectly holy and a perfectly righteous God. This is about life and death, same as the corpses, same as the skin diseases. Mark Scarlatta, who's a New Testament scholar, his book has been maybe the most helpful one for me in understanding the book of Leviticus. Mark Scarlatta says this. He says, human genitalia are associated with the production of life and an unnatural loss of blood or semen may have been associated with death and uncleanness. In the case of sexual union, the passing of semen to the female may symbolically represent loss of life for the male. The female may also be more in danger of death as the life of the child grows within her. Do you remember how we talked about that uh, a couple months ago, that in childbirth, it's this paradoxical uh, celebration of new life, but there is nothing that has taken the lives of more women throughout human history than childbirth and labor. And so it's like this really close brush with death. So sexual activity, reproduction, and new life were all endowed with God's mysterious power working through the human body. It is clear that Leviticus treats conception as a sacred event that should be held with the greatest respect in relation to holiness and wholeness. Another New Testament scholar, or sorry, Old Testament scholar, John Golden Gay says, in Western Christian culture, the key question about sex may seem the moral one about whether you are having sex with the right person. And menstruation is just something a woman has to put up with. But actually, sex and menstruation deserve some awe on the part of both men and women. For some women, their monthly period is a reminder that once again, 
they have failed to conceive. And they are very aware of this link between menstruation and procreation, and their menstruation is a sign of life and a sign of death. It's life wasted. And so too is their husband's emission of semen. So I know this is stuff that we don't talk about in church. Some of you are thinking, could we please get back to that? Uh, But the big idea really of this passage and the big idea that I'm trying to, to, to put before you today is what did this mean to them? Well, it means that because death is always right at the door, life is to be honored as sacred. They had an awe and a reverence around procreation and conception and menstrual blood and all of these things. It's this, it's this sacred, mysterious thing. Now, I know that we live in the age of the Enlightenment where modern medicine has come along and has maybe stripped away some of the awe and the wonder around it, but I'm here to say to you, what if, what if we had a little bit more awe and wonder around it? What if we said, yeah, we can medically understand about fertilization and egg and all that kind of stuff, but for crying out loud... What a remarkable thing that it even exists at all. Science can tell us what is happening, but we need God to explain to us why there is any, why is there life and why is there procreation even to begin with? Life is to be honored as sacred. So that's what it meant to them. Second question, remember what that is? How does this point us to Jesus? Well, if you're paying attention during the scripture reading, you know that we're going to go to Luke chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, flip to Luke chapter 8. And by the way, the scripture reading team is very grateful that I chose some New Testament passages for the scripture reading, and I just fell on that sword and didn't make you guys read that one, so you're welcome, Angela. Luke chapter 8. Jesus, he's, he's been traveling around. He went to a, a little different region of the, the Gerasenes, but now he's coming back to the Galilee. And all the crowds welcoming him, for they were expecting him. And and just then a man named Jairus came, and he was a leader of the synagogue, a Jewish man, a very devout follower of the God of Israel. And he fell down at Jesus' feet, and he pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only, only daughter. This is is the language of just preciousness. And and she was uh, about 12 years old, but she was dying I have a daughter who's 12 years old and I can just imagine and relate to this father's desperation. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can uh, make to, to, to change this situation. He's in desperation running to Jesus. Now, there's an interruption. While he's going, we, we know that the crowds are there and they're, the crowd's nearly crushing him. But this, inter- this story gets interrupted by a woman who was suffering from bleeding for, oh, this is interesting. How long? How long, Sound City? 12 years. How old was the daughter? So here, Luke, inspired by the Spirit, puts before us a portrait of a man who has experienced 12 years of joy. He loves this daughter. She's precious to him. Contrasted with now a woman who's experienced 12 years of literal and figurative bleeding to death. No temple worship extra procedures to make sure that she's clean. She never is, because just every day, the bleeding never stops. But she doesn't give up. She's a fighter. She, She had, for 12 years, had spent all her money on doctors, and none of them, she couldn't be healed by any of them. So she approaches from behind. You see a little, a little, I don't know, some, she, she's a fighter. 
This woman's a take charge kind of gal. She approached from behind and touched the, the end or the fringes, the, the, the tzitzis of a rabbi of his robe. <laughs> As she touched the end of his robe, instantly her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Now, you have to believe that Jesus had a little sternness in his voice because it says everyone denied it. <laughs> hey! Who touched me? Uh, not me, not me. Everyone denied it. But good old Peter. <laughs> Peter's always got something to say. Peter says, well, uh, excuse me, master, there's literally like a crowd just crushing you. Everyone, I know everyone's saying they didn't touch you, but literally everyone has touched you. <laughs> I love Peter so much. Jesus goes, no, no, some, someone, an individual with a name, someone did touch me said Jesus. He says, I know that power has gone out from me. There's a whole rabbit hole to be explored there of a woman with involuntary discharges from her body and now all of a sudden Jesus with this involuntary discharge of Holy Spirit life and power. I don't have time to explore it, but it's somebody else figured out and email me. Someone did touch me because I know that power has gone out for me. And when the woman saw that she had been discovered, she came forward trembling and fell down before him. And in the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. And Jesus, now with compassion and mercy, he calls her a term of endearment. He says, daughter, your faith has saved you. You, you put your trust in the right place. Go in peace. Matthew Thiessen, a New Testament scholar, he just puts it so well. He says, this depiction of Jesus portrays something unexpected. Whoever Jesus is, even contact with the, the garment can provoke an unconscious flow of healing power from his body. Such power emanating or leaking out of Jesus' body through mere contact with his clothing, with, of course, the woman's trust, her faith, demonstrates that, here it is, Jesus' body contains some sort of contagious holiness. That's a good band name. Tim, that's your band name for today, Contagious Holiness. Jesus is the Holy One of God, a force of holiness that opposes the forces of impurity, a new and previously unheard of source of powerful holiness has entered into a world mapped by categories of purity and impurity and holiness and commonness. Jesus, the Holy One of God, represents such an overwhelming force of holiness that those who suffer, even the most enduring forms of ritual impurities, find themselves dried up, healed, and purified. See, Jesus came into the world not merely as a, a good teacher of religious principles. Jesus did not come into the world simply as a prophet, although he was a prophet and a teacher of God's word. Jesus also did not come in the world simply to be a miracle worker, but every act of power that Jesus did was to display his identity, that Jesus came into the world as the God of life. 
Jesus is no mere mortal. He is no mere religious teacher. He actually claimed to have life within himself, the same as God the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 26, he says, you know how the Father has life in himself? You know how all life just flows out of God? You know, you know why there's flowers and birds and, and, and rainbows and raindrops and, and human beings and human babies? You know how God just created all things and animates all things and gives life and breath to all things? He says, yeah, me too. That's not just a good religious teacher. That's someone claiming something above and beyond that. Jesus says, as the Father has life in himself, so too it has been granted to the Son to have life in himself. And Jesus said, I came to bring life in the world, but not just any life. I came to bring abundant life. In John chapter 10, he says, you know, there's a thief, and all he wants to do is steal and kill and destroy, but I have entered into the world that you might have life and what? Have it to the full a life that is full of God's shalom and wholeness, a life that is full of love and grace and mercy from God, a life that is full of feasting and joy and and fasting and solemnness and relationship and loving one another and serving one another. Jesus doesn't want us to just wake up every day, drag our, our carcass through the day. He wants us to experience the abundance that comes from walking in relationship with him. And then Jesus said, what's more, it's not just right here and now abundant life. I'm actually the God of eternal life. He says, you know what my father wants? Do you know what's the will of my father? That everyone who sees the son, who sees me and believes in me, will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That Jesus said, my, my desire is not just that you'd have a good life here and now, but that you could experience my wholeness, you could experience my abundance, and one day, there is a day coming when I will put to death once and for all, and you will be raised up and live with me in eternal life. And the people started believing Jesus, and then one day, on, on, this, on this, this feast of Passover, the, the worst, most unthinkable happen, uh, thing happened from their perspective. The, the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities, they arrested Jesus, and they crucified him. And now they're sitting there looking, they, oh no, the one who promised to give us life is now dead. But what they didn't realize is that as Jesus hung on the cross, he was absorbing, he was taking the worst that sin and death had to offer. He was taking it all upon himself that we might be freed from the power of death. And what's more, on the third day, guess what? Jesus didn't stay dead. We don't serve a dead religious founder or some ancient historical figure who speaks good truth. We serve a resurrected savior who proved that everything he said was true by coming back from the dead. This is the good news of the gospel. See, what Jesus did with the woman, he says, oh, your womb is dead? I'm going to bring that womb back to life. But do you know what he's going to do for all of us on the last day? Oh, your whole corpse is dead? Cool, I'm going to bring you back to life. This is the hope of the gospel. If anyone tells you that the message of Christianity is something other than the hope of eternal resurrection life with Jesus, give them Aaron Lynn's phone number and she will set them straight, okay? (laughs) This is what the hope of the gospel is. Not about being a good religious person. Not about learning how to just, I mean, yes, we want to love one another. Yes, we want to serve the poor. All those things are, are, are part and parcel from it. But it's because we're resurrection people. We have a resurrected savior. All right, I got a little excited there. That was question number two. I still got one more question to answer. What did it mean to them back then? Life is sacred. How does this point us to Jesus? Jesus is the God of life, both for this age and the age to come. Now, the last question. How do we live this out? Because you say, Aaron, I love you, but I went back, I read Leviticus 15. 
I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Maybe I'm supposed to wash my couch. Maybe that's the message. And I'm, maybe you do need to wash your couch. I don't know. It might be dirty. It's not my place to judge. You talk about the people you live with with that. I don't know. Some of you single dudes definitely need to wash your couch. Okay. I'm going <laughs> uh, to talk three things. Okay. How do we live this out? We're going to live as people of life. We're going to die as people of life, and we're going to rise again as people of life, okay? Now, if I did not make you uncomfortable yet with Leviticus 15, this next slide that I'm about to have put up on the screens is for certain going to make you uncomfortable, okay? Living as people of life touches on a whole host of issues that we deal with. Let's go ahead and put this slide up on the screen, please. Issues as wide-ranging as abortion, elderly care, euthanasia, war, the environment— Some of y'all are like, oh, I was fine with the menstrual blood and semen. Could we please get away from all the stuff that looks like politics? No, because if you stood up now, it's going to be real awkward, okay? Uh, You sit down, Sam. I'm watching you. (laughs) Listen, listen. Hear, Hear me, please. Hear me, hear me, hear me. I am not primarily talking about politics and voting and legislation, Supreme Court justices. I am not talking about that. The American political machine wants you to think that all of these different issues where we interact with the forces of death, the only hope for life and death is the right party, the right Supreme Court justices, the right legislation. And while we can and should have political opinions, we're followers of Jesus. And our only hope in life and death is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Put it in the right place. Nations come, nations go, kings are raised up, presidents are deposed, the word of the Lord will stand forever, and we're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we can and should sit and discuss in good faith what's the best way to preserve life from a political standpoint, but I want to just make a few comments for us as followers of Jesus where some of the baselines are, okay? So something like abortion, obviously we're dealing with a really uh, heated moment in American life and cultural discourse around the subject of abortion with the recent Supreme Court decision. I will simply say that the historic teaching of the Bible is that if, 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 think of it this way, if the very bodily fluids themselves are sacred or are to be treated with honor and respect, how much more so the tiniest little, even, you know, quote, clump of cells in the uterus of a woman that should be treated with sacredness and honor and dignity and respect. Is that life viable on its own? Of course not. Are there some 15-year-olds who are not viable on their own? Yes. It's a silly thing. If Elon Musk went and found three cells on Mars tomorrow, every newspaper would say, what? Life was found on Mars. This is life inside of a woman's body. And those vulnerable, those most vulnerable, should be safeguarded, taken care of. Again, now I'm not even necessarily talking, again, voting and all that kind of stuff, that can come into play. But when I was a kid, my parents volunteered at a crisis pregnancy center, of which there are roughly 4,000 of them in the United States of America. And the overwhelming majority of that money and resource and support comes from church-attending, Bible-believing Christians such as yourself. When, when I was like four or five years old, my mom met a 15-year-old girl who's, who'd gotten pregnant unexpectedly, and her dad said, get an abortion or get out of the house. This was in the wintertime in Fairbanks, Alaska. It was 20 degrees below zero, so my parents just brought her home, and she stayed with us. And somewhere out there now is a 
35-year-old man named Michael, who's alive because my parents just said, well, you come stay with us then. Again, I'm not talking about voting. We can talk about that. But what if the Lord put you into a position to be able to make the difference in the life of someone? Also, it means that we as a church community need to work on building a church culture where if and when one of our teenagers becomes pregnant accidentally through whatever, then we can say, hey, we're gonna surround you with the love and the care that you need to make this be a place in the culture not of shame, but of life. Adoption. Christians since the beginning have been taking in unwanted children. And you can read about it in the Roman historians. Right now, Bible-believing, church-attending Christians adopt at double the national average, which I say is a good start. Let's do more. What about people with disabilities? Something that just absolutely broke my heart is, I read an article, I can't remember which newspaper, but it was someone who was a pro-abortion advocate talking about people with disabilities as though it would have been better for them to die and never have been given a chance at life. I have family members that are pretty seriously on the autistic spectrum. We have people that come to this church every single week in a wheelchair. Are they not image bearers of God? When I was a young adult, we had a man at our church who's basically my same age. It's like late teens, early 20s. He would come to church and I would lead worship and he would stand kind of right over here and just sing his guts out. He'd been through a pretty traumatic birth and he just had the mental capacity of about an eight or a nine-year-old. And he would sing his guts out and he always had this smile on his face and he was always so happy, just emanating the joy of the Lord. And he would sing and after church, he would come up to me and talk to me about the video game Mortal Kombat. He was obsessed and he knew who to talk to about it, I guess. What about those who are elderly in the twilight years of life? This relates to issues of euthanasia. Our our society values output, produce. They're drain on the social security system. Apostle Paul tells Timothy that those who don't take care of their extended family members... Paul has some strong words. You ready for this? He says, they're worse than unbelievers and are denied the faith. So maybe some of you, the the best way to live as a person of life is you start setting aside money right now to take care of your parents in their later years. Immigration. People fleeing from one war-torn country to another, looking for a place where they can have a chance at life. I'm in connection with a man, a ministry partner in this area who... uh, learned of 120 Afghan Christians who were displaced from Afghanistan a year ago when the Taliban took back over. They're currently hanging out in the United Arab Emirates, but they want to, this group of 120 Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians, they want to come to the States, but it's so expensive. So this friend of mine went around and asked a bunch of churches and raised $60,000 in one month's time to try to pay for all the visas and all the plane tickets and all the lodging for literally, he's doing a church transplant is what he's doing. It's remarkable. And you can say, well, hey, what about, what about like immigration laws and how many people we can take? Again, there's places for Christians in good faith to discuss and debate these things. But don't you want to see these people who are fleeing for their lives experience peace and wholeness and some safety somewhere? War. The prophet Isaiah says that at the end of the age, Jesus is gonna take all of our swords and he's gonna hammer them into garden tools. No more stabbing. Trimming the hedges. One day the Lord is going to melt down every assault rifle and turn it into a lawnmower. 
I understand that there's sometimes tragic realities of self-defense or even national defense, but can I just, like, there should be no such thing as a pro-war Christian. War is the death and destruction of image bearers of God. As one theologian soldier put it so eloquently, war is hell. The environment, I don't know. I, this is the top eight. I had more, I, put, I didn't put them on there. If I haven't offended you, please come talk to me in the parking lot. I will find a special way to offend you after this. My point is, friends, my point is, we're people of life. We were purchased by the death and the resurrection of the God of life. We want to see life flourishing. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the next thing, and I'll close with this. If we did all of our bestest work, if we gave every penny that we had, if we served at every old folks home, if we served at every you know, crisis pregnancy center, if we did all the work that we possibly could, guess what? Until Jesus returns, we still will face death. Jesus said, the poor you'll always have among you. And then similarly, you know, until the end of this age, we can't stop death. So we need to learn how to die as people of life. Psalm 116 says, there's something precious in the eyes of the Lord when one of his saints dies. Obviously, death is a great enemy. Death is a a, a perversion. Death is not supposed to be here. But when someone trusts in Jesus, when someone lives a life well-lived, well, Paul says in Philippians, you know, that's a gain. To live is Christ, but to die, that's, that's even better. I get to go be with Jesus. So we need to advocate for life, fight for life, and then we need to die as people of life because, I'll close with this, one day we're going to rise as people of life. Scott Sauls is a pastor and author. He says this, according to scripture, when we die, we will not be buried in the dirt forever. We're just going to be planted there for a time. Our mortal bodies, now tarnished by weariness, will be like fertile seeds in waiting. And once resurrected, our bodies are going to assume all the features of immortality, full redemption, unending momentum, untarnished flourishing, imperishable bliss. We are now and forevermore united with Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Because Jesus lives and will never die again, the same must be true of us. Do you believe that, Sound City? Do you hope for that, Sound City? And in a moment, as we come to the table of the Lord, may it remind us of the day that we share in that meal, the resurrection meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Lord, Lord, I ask and I pray that now as we come to you, that you would remind us that you are the God of life. You created all things. You created us to know you. Lord, we, even now, we want to wait, uh, repent, where we in our sin have given place to death in the world. But Lord, we trust in you, your death, your resurrection that we celebrate now at the table, that one day we will rise with you. Help us to hope in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.